Good morning. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 13 today, but before I begin, I want to, to tell you a story, a true story about another pastor uh, somewhere else in the United States who got sick on a Monday morning, and he was a young guy and said, you know, I'll be fine. I just need to power through the week, get to Sunday, preach, I'll be okay. And Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, he just gets worse and worse and worse. Friday night comes, and he's like, I'm not going to be able to preach. So he calls somebody at his church. We'll call him Dean. And Dean says, or excuse me, the, the pastor says, Dean, I need you to preach for me Sunday. And I know it's last minute and before the pastor can even finish what he's saying to Dean, Dean, he doesn't say, oh, pastor, I'm so sorry you're sick. Dean is running around, gathering books, getting his Bible, telling the pastor what he's going to preach on Sunday. So excited to spend his day off on Saturday studying to preach on Sunday morning. And Dean is just, he's a stand-up guy. He, he serves in the church. He takes seminary classes for fun. And the pastor hangs up the phone on Friday night and he says, man, I wish I had more people like Dean in my church. And Saturday rolls around and then Sunday morning comes and the service has to be canceled because Dean doesn't show up. And Dean doesn't show up because that morning at about 4 a.m., Dean is arrested at a gas station for selling children. And we hear stories like that and true stories like that about, and we, how does that happen? What went wrong for someone like Dean who was in church and he, he knew his Bible well? He had Bible, what, where, does, where does he go wrong? What, how do I avoid becoming like that? And Paul actually warns Christians in the New Testament. He says, things like this are going to happen. And he says, be careful. He writes to Timothy, a young pastor. And at the beginning of his letter to Timothy, he says this, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. And these some are not just random, some random people. Paul says, among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, that they may be taught not to blaspheme. These are real people, real cases. And in a sermon at the beginning of, in, in Hebrews, Paul's sermon to, he says this, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And this is not a drift away. It's a drift away like a ship drifts away into a storm and is never seen again. How does this happen? How do we follow Paul's scary and sobering warnings? What do we do because of them? How do we avoid becoming someone like Dean? and wrecking our church and our families and our lives? How do we avoid that? We avoid that by knowing how does that begin? Where does Dean, or where did Alexander or Hymenaeus, where did they break bad? What, what's the difference there? What happened to them? And there's perhaps no better case study in Scripture 
than King Saul. King Saul, who is probably the most tragic figure in the Bible, who, who he falls away, who drifts away, who shipwrecks his faith, who is, is like an Alexander or like a Dean, is King Saul. Saul, who is, he's the first king of Israel. Right? He's, he's iconic, the first king Israel ever has. He represents God's chosen people, and even he shipwrecks his faith, even he falls away. So before getting into the text, a little background about 1 Samuel, this book that we're in. The Israelites, they uh, were in Egypt. They were slaves. God delivers them in the book of Exodus. They wander around in this wilderness for some time, and then God gives them a land. Just as God gave Adam and Eve a garden, and he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, flourish in this garden. So now God, he gives Israel this promise, and he says, Stay here, be fruitful, multiply, flourish in this place that I've given to you. But just as there was a snake in the Garden of Eden that Adam should have cast out, so there are snakes in this promised land that Israel as a nation is supposed to cast out. But they don't. And that's what the book of Judges is about. There's this where the the bad people in the promised land, the people who hate God and they love idols, they are less of a problem than the Israelites themselves who keep sinning. And there's this cycle, right, where Israel, they sin, they cry out to God for help. God delivers them through a savior or a judge, and then they're delivered, and they do well for a time, and then they go back to sin. And finally, the Israelites say, we just, we want a king. We need a king. We don't want to continue this cycle. We would like a king. And Saul reluctantly becomes that first king. Saul, he, he doesn't choose to become king, but God chooses him to become king. And for those of us who know the story of Saul, we forget his beginnings. We forget how great of a king he was when he first started out. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, Saul, the spirit of God powerfully comes on him and he prophesies with the prophets of God. In chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, there's this man named Nanash the Ammonite, an enemy of Israel. And him and his army, they lay siege to an Israelite city. And the Israelites are terrified. They don't want to do anything about it. But Saul says, no, that's enough of that. Come on, let's go. Let's get Nanash the Ammonite. The Spirit of God comes powerfully on Saul, and he proves to be an excellent warrior. And we see him also with Samuel. Samuel, who's the high priest of Israel, the highest prophet of Israel, the, the man who is iconic for, for God himself. And Saul comes alongside Samuel and he's offering sacrifices in keeping with the law. So Saul, he does great. He's an excellent king. He's an excellent prophet. He's an excellent priest. He's an excellent warrior. And then we get to chapter 13. And I'm going to just go through this again and, and make some commentary as we read through this tragic story of Saul. Beginning in verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel for himself. 2,000 were with Saul at Michmash and in Bethel's hill country, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. He sent the rest of the troops away, each to his own tent. Jonathan is Saul's son. Jonathan is also a commander in Israel's army. But Israel didn't have a formal army. They had a, a militia. So these soldiers were not professional soldiers. They were farmers, day laborers, builders. And they had lives to get back to. And so Saul says, okay, 
you guys, I'm going to keep 3,000, 2,000 for me, 1,000 for Jonathan. These are the guys who are on duty, but the rest of you go back to your day jobs. And so they do that. But then we see in verse 3, Jonathan attacked the Philistine garrison that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. So there's this small garrison of Philistines that are in the land and they shouldn't be there. And Jonathan says, I've got a thousand troops. We'll just, we'll kick them out. Let's get them out of here. But they, they poke a hornet's nest and the whole nation of Philistia, they hear about it and they're coming to do battle. And this is inconvenient for Saul because we see earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 10 that the reason Saul is where he's at, the reason he only has 2,000 troops is because he's waiting for Samuel. Samuel says, I want you to go here, wait for me, don't do anything, and I'm going to teach you how to offer proper sacrifices to God. And so Saul is hanging out, and we don't know, there must have been some miscommunication between him and Jonathan, or Jonathan just didn't realize the impact that this attack would have, but now the Philistines are on to Israel. And in verse, and, and Saul Right, he blows the ram's horn throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine garrison, and Israel is now repulsive to the Philistines. And so the troops were summoned to join Saul at Gilgah. He's saying, These men of Israel, they're the, not a part of the 3,000. They're a part of the people who went back to their tents, back to their farms, back to whatever they did for a living. Saul says, all right, come back. There's a, there's a battle, actually. Come back. Get ready. There's about to be a huge fight with the Philistines. And we see in chapter, or excuse me, verse 5, the Philistines also gathered to fight against Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash of beth The Philistines, they, they were not like Israel. They had a professional army. They had real soldiers, not militia, not minutemen that came in when things got hard, but professional soldiers who grew up fighting. And something that we read later in 1 Samuel 13 is that Jonathan and Saul are actually the only people in the army of Israel with swords because the Israelites didn't have access to iron. They just made their own spears or clubs out of sticks and stones. They used farming instruments as weapons. They probably had terrible armor, if any armor at all. But the Philistines, they have blacksmiths. They're making spears out of steel and iron. They're, they're making, not, not steel, steel comes later, but they're, they're making iron weapons, right? They have iron armor. They're, and they're way more numerous than the Israelites. It's like... The men of Portage versus the U.S. military. That's, that's kind of the odds here. Everybody with a hunting license and a concealed carries permit, come on, we're going to go fight the U.S. military. That, that's not going to end well. And the men of Israel, who we read about in verse 6, they're the people who are, are not there. They're being called back. There's this huge understatement in Scripture. The men of Israel saw that they were in trouble because the troops were in a difficult situation. Exactly. So they, they don't want to come back to fight. They're, they know that they're going to get beaten. So what do they do? They hide in caves, in thickets, among rocks, in holes, and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, which is a nice way of saying that they betrayed Israel and went to fight for the Philistines. Saul, however, was still at Gilgah, and all his troops were gripped with fear. 
and we, we read later that of his 2,000 he starts with, he only has 600 left. The 1,400, they end up deserting him. He waited seven days for the appointed time that Samuel had set, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgah, and the troops were deserting him. He's waiting for Samuel to come. Samuel said, don't do, don't do anything until, until I get there. But now, what has happened? Jonathan, he's attacked the Philistines, and now the Philistines, they've got all their chariots and their horsemen and their army, and they're coming to attack Israel. He's overwhelmed by the Philistines. And this is an example of, on a large scale, what's happening in Saul is an example on a large scale of what is common to the human experience, what we experience in our daily lives. Uh, there's a comedian named Jim Gaffigan. He lives in New York City in an apartment with his wife and five kids. And when he had his fifth kid, somebody asked him, Jim, what's it like going from four kids to five kids? And he said, well, it's like imagine you're drowning and someone throws you a baby. That's, that's what it's like. And I, I don't know what that's like. And, and uh, Saul, he's, he's drowning in Philistines. He's overwhelmed. And people keep throwing him babies. Samuel is not showing up when he said he would show up. He's not coming at the appointed time. The Israelite men, the reinforcements are not reinforcements. They're not coming. They're not there. And the men he has are terrified. They're not going to fight. They're defecting to the Philistines. They're not, they're not ready. He's already overwhelmed. He doesn't need anything else. He just, you know, why can't, you know, Samuel just show up on time? Or why can't I at least have some troops who are willing to fight and are not terrified? And we, we see this in our own lives when, you know, we have bills to pay. And we have a tight budget. And we're trying to pay off loans and pay off debts. And the car breaks down. Right? I, I already have bills and loans that I'm trying, I'm, I already, um, I don't, I, the money is already tight and I didn't need that thrown at me. I didn't need my car to break down. Or you're busy, because you're all busy, right? You're all under, underslept and overworked and you're committed to being at three different places at the same time, all the time. And then you get sick or your church asks you to serve. And I don't have time for that. I'm already overwhelmed. I'm already drowning. I don't need that extra thing thrown at me. Or you're a student and you hate school for whatever reason, but at least you get to come home in the evenings and enjoy your weekends. And you come home and your parents sit you down. And they say, you know what, son, daughter, me and your mom, me and your dad, this, is, this isn't going to work out. Or you come home and you look at the fridge and you've got a Christmas card from your aunt, but she's not with your uncle on it. And you didn't, you didn't know. And I didn't, I didn't need that. I already hate school. Why do I? And now there's this. Or, you know, you, you hate your job, but you know what? It's been going a little bit better this past week because, you know, you found out you're going to have your first child. And you're, you're excited about that. And then your wife miscarries. And you, you just, you're already overwhelmed. You didn't need that. And those are dramatic examples, but we experience this in small ways every day. Like when your wife goes out of town for the weekend and you come home from work and you're tired and hungry, but there's no food in the house except for some diet pop and some chips and one can of SpaghettiOs, 
And you're like, this is a crappy dinner, but this is all I have. I have to fend for myself. And you've got all three of those, right? You've got your pop, your chips, your SpaghettiOs, but you've only got two hands, and you've got to get to the living room where the TV is, but you're a man, so you're not going to take more than one trip. You're going to carry it all with you. And then you spill the SpaghettiOs, and it's like, that was, that was all I had to eat. And I didn't even like it, but now I don't even have it. Right? I was, oh, I was overwhelmed, and now, now this happens. What, why? And it's, it's so easy. We're always already stressed and anxious and tired and overworked and overwhelmed, and then other things come our way. And that's what Saul's experiencing right here. So what, is, what does he do? And I think that if we didn't already know the story, we would think Saul was perhaps acting in faith. So Saul said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. Then he offered the burnt offering. He was supposed to wait for Samuel. But you know what? I didn't plan on Jonathan, my son, attacking the Philistines. I didn't know this was going to happen. These circumstances are far from ideal. I didn't plan on this. I don't have control over it. I didn't want it to go this way. I'm at least going to ask for God's favor, however so imperfectly. I'm at least going to prioritize God and do these sacrifices. And verse 10 says, Just as he finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel arrived just as he finished. And maybe this is a dark note, but Saul doesn't seem to think so because it doesn't say Samuel went and greeted Saul, but it says that Saul went out to greet Samuel. And Samuel asked him, what, what have you done? Samuel making his way towards Saul and he sees the, the smoke, right? And then he, he gets closer and he can smell the burning animal and then he, he sees Saul finishing up what he was supposed to wait to do. And Saul says this, I saw that the, the troops were deserting me, and you, Samuel, you didn't come within the appointed days, and the Philistines were gathering at Michmash. I thought, the Philistines will now descend on me at Gilgah, and I haven't sought the Lord's favor. So I forced myself, to offer the burnt offering. Saul has a clean conscience. My circumstance, I couldn't, what was I supposed to do? I did, I did the best I could with what I, I thought I was doing. I, you know, show me, show me a little bit of pity, Samuel. But this is Samuel's response to Saul. You have been foolish. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. It was at this time that the Lord would have permanently established your reign over Israel, but now your reign will not endure. You see, these, these unplanned for circumstances that Saul experienced were planned by God in order to test Samuel's heart. And the unplanned for circumstances in our lives, too, are not truly unplanned. They're, they're planned by God. And they're planned in order to test our hearts. Proverbs chapter 17 verse 3 says, A crucible for silver, a smelter for gold, and the Lord is the tester of hearts. You see, our hearts, who we are, it's like a non-transparent container. We can't see inside. One theologian said that our hearts are like a smoking furnace. We, we look into them to see what is fueling the fire, but we can't see because there's so much smoke. And what God does 
because he is the tester of hearts, is he takes circumstances and situations that we don't plan, plan on, and he uses those to fan away the smoke so that we can see what's in our hearts. You see, difficult circumstances, this is an important point right now, difficult circumstances, they do not corrupt our hearts, they reveal the contents of our hearts. Difficult circumstances, unplanned for situations do not corrupt, but they reveal the contents of our hearts. It's like if you take a milk jug and you place it here on the table, and we'll, let's say there's an earthquake, right? So the, the table, it starts to shake, and the, the jug, it starts to shake, and it, it tips over, and milk comes out. And you say, wow, that's amazing. Earthquakes can create milk. If they, if they just shake the table a little bit, and there's a container on it, and it tips over, earthquakes create milk. That's amazing. No, that's not how, that's not how science works. The, the milk was already there in the container. The earthquake just tipped it over to see what came out. Right? God uses our circumstances to tip our hearts over and to see what comes out. Difficult circumstances. But we often blame our circumstances for the contents of our heart. We blame our circumstances for what's been in our heart the whole time. Well, if, if I just had more time, if I wasn't so stressed, anxious, if I, if I had a little more money, if, if this person was not the way that they are, and if this would, and then I would, then I would, and, and no, those are just circumstances that reveal what's in your heart. We blame our circumstances for the contents of our heart, and it's like blaming a flashlight for creating bats in an attic or for creating rats in a basement. Flashlights don't create things. They just show what's there. And God uses circumstances that are hard in our lives like a flashlight to show us what's really there. That's what he uses to clear away the smoke to see who we really are. Who you are under the worst circumstances is who you truly are. You are not your circumstances. You are not tired. You are not hungry. You are not just a bad day. You are responsible for how you act and what you think and what you say on your worst days. You are responsible for that. It's not circumstances that helps us keep us godly, that helps us to heed Timothy's warnings. It's not circumstances alone that keep us from becoming like Saul or becoming like Dean. Right? That's why Paul says, but for the grace of God, there I go. If I experience the same circumstances that Saul experienced, I would do the same thing. Or Dean, perhaps you would do the same thing. And if you, if you don't, then you don't get it. Because John Owen, I've said it before here, I think at City Gate, and I'll, I'll say it again over and over, the seed of every sin is in the heart of every man. The seed of every sin is in the heart of every man. The seed of Saul's sin is in your heart. The seed of Dean's sin is in your heart. What separates you from shipwrecking your faith, it's not your circumstances. It's not even the sin that's in your heart. Saul doesn't break bad here in verse 13. It's not even even this sin. Sin has consequences. He's lost his reign. But where, where Saul really goes bad, where he really turns sour, is in verse 14, where Samuel says, The Lord has found a man after his own heart, 
and the Lord has appointed him as a ruler over his people because you have not done what the Lord commanded. What should have Saul done here? He should have agreed with Samuel and confessed his sin rather than confessing his circumstances. And then he should have said, who is this man who is after God's own heart so that I might follow him? My reign is over. I've sinned. I've disobeyed the commands of God. My reign is over, but, but who is this man that is after God's own heart? And we know later in 1 Samuel, we find out that it's a man named David, the second king of Israel. But Saul doesn't do that. What he does, he spends the rest of his life trying to kill David. He rejects Samuel's words. He doesn't confess his sin. He sticks with his circumstances. He, he just needs another chance, and then he would do, if Jonathan just hadn't hit the Philistine, he confesses his circumstances, not his sin, and then he tries to kill David. Citygate, what, what you need to do in order to not shipwreck your faith, in order to not drift away, in order to heed Paul's sober warnings, is to agree with Samuel and confess your sins to God, not your circumstances. God, he gave you those circumstances. And then you need to ask, who is this son of David that I can follow? Right? For Saul, it was David, but for us, it's David's son. It's Jesus who comes later. And when we do this, James, an apostle, he says, consider it pure joy when you experience trials of many kinds. You realize that the Bible, it actually, it commands you to feel a certain way, which is interesting. You, ha you have to feel a certain way. You have to feel joy when you are under pressure, when you're stressed and overwhelmed. You have to feel a certain way. And how, you know, how can we do that? How can we obey that command? That's impossible. How we obey that command, how we experience joy, when we're, when we're overwhelmed and we're stressed out and we see that our worst selves come out and that's who we, who we really are, that's who you really are, that, that's God blowing away the smoke and showing you your heart as we, we see this, this sin and we say, you know what, this is awful, but I'm going to follow the person who is a man after God's own heart. Right? As Paul says, I have a righteousness, but it's not my own. It's not from my heart. It's not from works of the law. It's not from works at all. It's from God, and it's found in Jesus. Is you find joy when you, you take that sin and you say, this is who I am, but it's, it's really not. Why? Because, because Jesus has died for me. Because the, the worst circumstances ever experienced were experienced by Jesus when he was on the cross, when he hadn't eaten in 40 days and was in the wilderness, but especially on the cross, and the wrath of God was coming down on him. No worse circumstances have there ever been in human history, and we see Jesus, and out of his heart comes perfect submission and perfect obedience. And we realize that, that when, we, when we look at Jesus, he's, he's not dying for himself he is dying for you he's dying for you on your worst days and you you sin and you you look at that sin when you're crushed under stressful circumstances and you give it to Jesus who takes that 
and he kills it through his death. That is how you can have joy in suffering. That is what is required of you. That's what makes you different from someone like Saul. And, you know, I, if you're here today and you're, this is your first time or you're not, not a Christian yet, you might be saying, are you, you know, you're telling me, Cole, that the, the most relevant thing in my entire life right now when I'm busy and I'm stressed out and I'm overwhelmed and I've got things to do, the most important thing right now is this man who lived 2,000 years ago who died as a criminal on the other side of the world and he was a carpenter's son. That's what's most relevant for me right now in my life. And I'm not, I'm not telling you, that's not what's most relevant that, for your life. That, that is your life. That is where your life is found. Apart from that, there, there's, there's nothing at all. That's why Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, at the very beginning of that letter, he says this. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For Jews ask for signs, and Greeks, they seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Follow, agree with Samuel, follow Jesus. You are who you are on your worst day. And that is the gospel because on Jesus' worst day, he was the same as he was on his best day. He was, he was perfect. And on the cross, he died, but not for himself. He died for you. He died for People like Dean, right? I don't know. I don't know what Dean, where he is, or what happened to him. But but I know that he has not sinned in such a way that he is outside the realm of God's forgiveness, and that's good news, because the seed of Dean's sin is it's in your heart, and what's keeping you from becoming like Dean or like Saul? It's it's not your circumstances, and it's not even even your heart. It's what it, what you do with that sin. So agree with Samuel. It's not my circumstance, it is my heart. And then follow Jesus. Jesus, he died for you on your worst day. And that is life. That's not relevant for life, that is life. And I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna continue to worship through taking communion and through singing. Let's pray.